Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 46 on this, the 3rd of March. March is Women's History Month, so in honour of that, we here at Far-Fetched Fables would like to celebrate by bringing you a month of women authors. This week we bring you two stories to celebrate those wonderful women. First up, Infinity Syrup by Laurel Winters. Laurel grew up in the mountains of Montana and acquired an eclectic education, including credits in English, physics and psychology from Montana State, and numerous writing and art classes. A number of high school literature textbooks contain egg horror poem, and her current passion is playing poker. Her first novel, Growing Wings, was a finalist for the Mythopaic Award for Children's Fantasy, and she's won back-to-back Riesling and Asimov's Reader's Poll Awards for Best Poem, a World Fantasy Award for Best Novella, Sky Eyes, and the 2003 McKnight Artist Fellowship for Children's Fiction. Follow the links on the Triple F to find out more. Reading Infinity Syrup today is yours truly, Nicholas eaton Clark. I could go on and on and tell you all about myself, but I'm sure you can read that on the website. And now it's time to clear your mind and do a little zen shopping. Here is Infinity Syrup by Laurel Winters. Faye was zen shopping, something she had learned when she worked swing shift in card assembly at IBM. The effort of plugging six components into the right holes on 400 cards had always left her too tired to think. Too tired to think, but too wired to sleep. So she usually stopped at a 24-hour grocery on her way home and let her hands do the shopping for her. Hands reaching mindlessly, plucking items off the shelves. And she was always surprised to find, when she got home and unpacked the paper bags, that she had exactly what she needed. 
Odd combinations, perhaps. Who would have paired avocado and kashi, kippered herring and strawberries? But the four basic food groups were always represented. No unappealing leftovers, taste buds tantalised in wonderful ways. And so, even when she worked away from swing shift to first, and from manufacturing to management, she still practised Zen shopping. Like now, totally absorbed in the moment. No planning, no brand comparison or calorie counting, especially no wanting. She was just there, cart moving smoothly before her, filling with strange and mysterious foods. The scent of live lobsters and fresh bread mingled in her nostrils. Shrink-wrapped plastic, smooth cardboard, cool glass lingered beneath her fingertips. Colours and shapes dazzled her eyes. And creeping in between the squeaks of cartwheels and the beep of scanners, a voice. May I help you, ma'am? Faye turned her head slowly. A stock boy, almost ridiculously young, peered at her, obviously wondering about the forty-plus woman in a trance in aisle four. Are you finding the type you want? he asked. Faye smiled. She must have been staring at the pasta again. The spirals of rotini, miniature spoked prayer wheels, perfect, thin spaghetti. Isn't it beautiful? she said. The boy's expression changed from concern to puzzlement. Faye walked on without choosing any pasta at all. In the beginning, Zen shopping had occasionally embarrassed her. Not now. She was one with the supermarket. Not for her, the regimented up one aisle and down the next until the whole store was covered. Faye's cart meandered, as if it had a mind of its own. Perhaps it did. After all, if everything had a Zen nature. Sometimes, thinking back, Faye would realise that she had gone through the produce aisle three times, halfway down frozen foods and then to checkout. On those days, she figured that her body needed fruits and vegetables more than anything else. It was like being guided, but not like following. Definitely hard to explain. The few friends she had tried to initiate just shook their heads and moved quickly to the next aisle. So Faye was perhaps the only practitioner of Zen shopping in the world. Certainly the only one in Southgate supermarket at that particular time. The other shoppers, when they filtered through her subconscious, could have been elements in a clock, or soldiers in a shopping army marching double time to thump melon rinds. Not that Faye was always slow. Sometimes, particularly when she needed sleep, she found herself with a loaded cart in the checkout lane when less than five minutes had gone by, and yet there would be no sensation of having rushed. And other days, Zen shopping could wield her through two hours without feeling time had passed at all. Today was one of those times. She found herself contemplating the twitch of a lobster's whisker on no less than three separate occasions, and those were the times that she remembered it could have been more. Around and around she went, dreamily, unfocused, and yet more focused than all the harried people around her. On and on, until her cart slowed and stopped in the checkout lane. The grocery clerk eyed the odd assortment in Faye's cart. Did you find everything you were looking for? she asked. It was not the usual rhetorical question. 
Faye could tell she was really curious. I wasn't looking for anything, Faye answered. She wrote out her check. The bemused checker started slinging items through the laser. Beep! 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 Bananas. Wild rice. Waffle mix. And then an item refused to scan. She frowned at the small glass bottle and jerked it through again. No go. What is this stuff? she asked as she punched in a twelve-digit code. Faye shrugged. I don't know. The checker really raised her eyebrows then. Infinity syrup, she read aloud from the label. Use sparingly. She started to laugh. It says that it prolongs life. <laughs> she slid the bottle down the conveyor to the box boy. Advertising. She ran the few remaining items through, and Faye handed her the completed check. That'll be twenty-two fifty. Hey, how did you know the amount before I totaled it? I didn't, said Faye. I was just writing. Zen shopping, you know. Obviously, the checker didn't know, and there wasn't time to enlighten her, because the next customer had just wheeled an overloaded cart into line and was drumming her fingers on the handle. Faye collected her groceries and went out. For the first time in a long time, she felt a sense of anticipation about going home, carrying the bags in, seeing what they contained. What is in that little bottle? she wondered. Definitely not a zen state of mind. Faye breathed deeply all the way home, practicing a modified form of zen driving. Although there had been occasions when she had reached her destination blissfully unaware of the streets in between, she tried not to surrender totally to the moment. She had no desire to truly become one with the road. By the time she reached her driveway, Faye had almost recaptured the there-not-there state of mind. Almost. In one active corner of her consciousness, the little bottle jiggled impatiently. Breathe, she told herself. Two bags of groceries. Faye poured water in a pan, watching it swirl. Wild rice first. She slit the plastic bag and plunged her hand into the cool, dark seeds, letting them slip between her fingers. One handful into the water, trickling from her fist a few grains at a time settling in a circular pattern. Another scoop. Minute splashes spiralling down. The click of the electronic pilot light, the whoosh of gas igniting, a perceptible warming as her hand rested on the control. Now. The little bottle of infinity syrup. Whatever that was. Zen shopping had never before burdened her with junk food or gimmicky fads. Trends took a conscious effort on keeping current that she was no longer willing to expend. No, infinity syrup was different. It had to be. She felt a tingle as her fingers found smooth glass, withdrew it from brown paper. Perfectly clear. As if the bottle itself were liquid on the inside. Faye tilted it from side to side, watching the slow flow of fluid, deciding, after some thought, to
to change directions. Resisting the impulse to open the cap, she placed the bottle on the counter and began to mix up the waffles. No measuring that wasn't necessary, just to sift and pour and blend. She smiled, thinking of the grandmother in dandelion wine who'd almost been ruined by recipes and spectacles. There was a model to emulate, although Grandma certainly would not have used waffle mix. After the batter was ready, Faye breathed the steam of the wild rice. She peeled a banana, one strip at a time, and divided it into perfect thirds by pressing her finger into the tip and gliding it down the natural cleavage. And she watched the clear syrup waiting in the bottle. When the wild rice finished cooking, she spooned it into the batter, stirred it in, and scooped the mixture into the waffle iron, perfectly heated at that precise moment. The banana baked in the toaster oven, done at the exact time she poured in a second waffle. Faye turned the waffle iron off. The remaining heat would cook the waffle by the time she finished her first one. Banana, wild rice waffles, tea. And the syrup. Use sparingly, she reminded herself aloud. She twisted the cap, tilted the bottle. A single, clear drop in each brown waffle well. That was sparingly, especially since she'd had the urge to inundate the waffle, to upend the bottle over her plate and hear the glug of air bubbles travelling up to the bottom, or even to drink it, one long, thick sip flowing down her throat. Faye shook her head and recapped the bottle. Ignoring the delicate baked banana, she cut the waffle into strips, the strips into pieces. The tines of her fork met the mild resistance of wild rice waffle. She raised a piece to her mouth. The moment the syrup touched her tongue, Faye wanted to melt. Maybe she did. Past, present, future, all were meaningless. There was only the now and the here of the waffles as she sucked the syrup out of it, chewed and let it slip down her throat. A flash of turquoise, the ringing of a temple bell, cracked granite against fingertips, the scent of sunrise on alfalfa, the taste of breast milk, everything crystallised, shattered, reformed. Faye blinked her eyes. Her plate was clean. Licked clean? The waffle line was open and empty, and the top half-inch of infinity syrup, a third of the way down the narrow neck, was gone. Wow, she whispered. That was Zen eating. Quickly, she placed the bottle on the top shelf of the cupboard over the sink. Mistake. As she washed the dishes, white suds succumbing to water and air, her eyes kept lifting, staring. She was not one with the act of washing dishes, not at all. Sleeping was different. A dream, although totally different in detail from her eating episode, recaptured the sense of the syrup. So real. Very real. When she went down to breakfast the next morning, the cupboard door was open and another half-inch of syrup gone. She shivered, satisfied and yet fearful. What would happen if she used it up? For breakfast, she had toast, with just a smidgen of syrup spread on it. 
and she licked the knife, tasting a brass sword, the bill of a toucan, a butterfly's antenna. She didn't look any different. A glance in the mirror at work told her that. So why the comments? Hey, did you dye your hair? Join the health club, Faye. In good shape, I see. You must have fallen in love. Yes, fallen in love. Faye touched her purse, traced the outline of the bottle through thin leather. In love, with all of life and with infinity syrup in particular. Somehow, she knew the claim on the side of the bottle was true. Prolongs life. Prolongs life and reveals aspects of it one would never experience, working for IBM or General Motors or Pillsbury. How many people knew the crashing sound of two bighorn sheep colliding? Faye heard that at lunchtime when she poured a dab on her salad. And lettuce became gold leaf on parchment handled by the fingers of monks. She breathed pollen felt the inner cold of an Antarctic crustacean, heard, Faye, are you going to sit there all day? The lunchroom was empty. Faye collected her thoughts and her purse with the bottle in it and returned to the real world. But how could you get more real than those sensations? In the next three days, Faye tried infinity syrup on steak, in orange juice, over fried eggs. She experienced the desperate crawl of a baby kangaroo from vagina to warm, dark pouch. She ate extinct ferns, drowned in quicksand, became a bamboo flute. There was not an infinite amount of infinity syrup. As the supply in the bottle dwindled, she consumed smaller portions, touching one finger to a drop and recapping the bottle before she transferred it to her tongue. The experiences weren't any less intense or rich. She thought back to that first waffleful and berated herself. Several days' worth in one sitting, wasted. And then it was gone. She tilted the bottle up higher and higher, finally sucking on the slender neck. Not even a scent to call up the smell of a South American orchid or the poison distilled from it. Faye deep-breathed all the way to the supermarket. She was excruciatingly aware of every red light, every left turn across traffic. She had to calm down. But she didn't. As she jerked a cart away from its close companions, her mind ferreted for information on her last shopping trip. Where had she picked up that bottle? Which shelf? Syrups? Maybe. She headed straight for the syrup and cereal aisle, scanned the shelves. At first, she just looked for the shape of the bottle. Then she started reading labels. Maybe they repackaged it, she said aloud. The next shopper moved her cart farther down the aisle. Faye paid no attention. Boysenberry, raspberry, apricot. Butterlite, real maple, generic. An almost infinite array of syrup flavours, but none labelled infinity. Maybe in baking goods. She perused the spices, the oils. Lemon extract, imitation vanilla, peppermint oil. She had to think. This wasn't doing any good. Faye steered her cart back to the entrance and started in aisle one. It wouldn't be in with the cheeses, would it? She looked anyway. 
Munster, Colby, Monterey Jack, shredded, sliced wax wheels. The only bottles were squat, pickled herring and chilled kosher dills. Second sweep down aisle one, the bakery side. No. Aisle two, canned goods and juices. Faye felt a flare of excitement. It could possibly be here. But it wasn't. French cut green beans, applesauce, V8. The closest she got was passion fruit, guava juice or baby ears of corn. Aisle by aisle, two sweeps of each. By the time she reached produce, a frenzy was setting in. A resigned frenzy. She took the empty bottle from her purse and asked a stock boy where it was found. He scratched his head. Did you try aisle three, where the syrup is? No help there. Not that she really expected any. She read the bottle again. No manufacturer listed. No ingredients, just the name. And a stick-on price tag and, use sparingly, prolongs life. This is ridiculous, she said. The stock boy murmured an apology which she didn't really hear. Zen shopping, she said. Maybe zen shopping. Faye breathed to centre herself and began to wander, letting her hands think for her. Again, she ignored strange glances from other shoppers. Single-minded, she hunted for... She drew her car to a halt in the middle of the baby food aisle. What was she doing? This wasn't zen shopping. The things her hand had clutched from the shelves were not what she needed. She hadn't emptied her mind. The disarray in her car told her that. Ant poison, artificial sweetener, seven bottles of salad dressing. The one thing the items had in common was a vague resemblance to the bottle in her purse. The same height, the same lack of colour, a similar shape. Faye abandoned that cart for an empty one. This time she chose cheese, bread, frozen broccoli. Conscious decisions from the four basic food groups. Aisle by aisle she made her way through the store. And all the while, as she lifted a carton of milk or put Granny Smith apples in a plastic bag, she searched. She ran her eyes like fingers over every item. She breathed in and out, tasting only air as she forced herself to buy a plastic bottle of ordinary pancake syrup. Not an acceptable substitute, but then there never would be one. Would one bottle prolong her life? She wondered, waiting in the checkout lane for her total. By how much? She pictured herself wandering through grocery aisles for the next hundred years, searching for infinity syrup or its equivalent, when all she wanted was to taste the diversity again, the small shocks of infinite viewpoints, the flavour of life. She swallowed, tasting only saliva, merely a collection of digestive enzymes, Infinity could last a long time at this rate. The clerk read off the total, and Faye pushed her hand through the meaningless choreography of writing a check. Breathe, she told herself. But she didn't really want to. It seems that once we get a taste of life, a real, deep taste of it, nothing else will satisfy when it's gone. 
Perhaps the lesson here is to enjoy those moments we cherish the most and not lament them when they're gone. Our next offering today is The Isle of Women by Jacqueline Carey. Jacqueline is the best-selling author of the critically acclaimed Cushiel's Legacy series of historical fantasy novels and The Sundering Epic Fantasy Duology. An avid reader, Jacqueline began writing fiction as a hobby in high school. After receiving BA degrees in psychology and English literature from Lake Forest College, she took part in a work exchange program and spent six months working in a bookstore in London. While living abroad, the desire to write professionally emerged as a driving passion, and upon returning she embarked in earnest on a writing career which came to fruition a decade later. Jacqueline enjoys doing research on a wide variety of arcane topics, and an affinity for travel has taken her from Finland to Egypt. She currently lives in West Michigan, where she is a member of the oldest Mardi Gras crew in the state. Although often asked by inquiring fans, she does not, in fact, have any tattoos. You can find out more about her at JacquelineCarey.com. Reading The Isle of Women is Sarah Fredrickson. Sarah is no stranger to the Triple F. She was born in Oregon in the United States and was raised in beautiful Minnesota. She spent most of her childhood acting and singing, both on stage and off, and affecting various accents for fun. She soon found herself competing in local, state and national forensics competitions. That's competitive speaking. Her experience and awards landed her a forensic scholarship to Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she continued to compete as well as train other speakers at the collegiate level. Sarah graduated with a degree in music business and audio production. Shortly after graduation, she travelled to Australia for a one-year holiday. During that time, she became smitten with an Australian man who asked her to stay. And four years later, the couple live and work in Australia, going on adventures, writing music and reading stories to their cat. And now, an ancient tale of adventure and revenge. Sit back and relax while we bring you The Isle of Women from Jacqueline Carey. We are nameless in the stories told by men. Even the lady, my gracious lady, who wore her beauty as lightly as a garment of the finest combed wool, on whose shoulders the mysteries perched like twin doves. It is no wonder they hailed her as queen, although it was not what she was. For that there is no word. Lady, we called her. But she had a name, too although it was seldom spoken aloud. In the stories they told afterward, none of us have names. I saw them first, from the ramparts. I saw their hide-bound carah riding the green swell of the waves, a carah so vast it might have been a small whale making its way to our shores. Truly it was a mighty vessel to hold such men. Seventeen, bold and fearless, and boldest of all was their leader, Mael Dune. I did not know that then. I did not know if they were kinsmen or foes, reavers come to wreak violence upon us. Then I merely picked up my skirts and hastened down the stairs to tell Our Lady. She sat at her spinning wheel within her day chamber. I knocked and was admitted. Several of the other maidens were present, carding and combing. 
I told them what I had seen. Thank you, Seba. The lady bowed her head, and her fine white hands went still. Then she laid down her distaff, and when she lifted her head, there was a strangeness in her face. I will ride forth to see these men. Do you prepare the sacred bath, for it is in my heart that they are not enemies, and I must make ready to receive them. All this was done as she wished. While the men of Maeldun drew their mighty karah ashore and my lady watched, we laboured outside the walls of the dune. There, where the spring bubbles from amid the moss-covered rocks, we built the fires to warm the big hanging kettle. We filled it with pure water from the spring, before it spills over the rocks into the little brook. It took three times to fill the bronze tub within the bothy, and when it was done, she came back. She gave her horse over to Ithne, who led it to the stable. We eased the richly embroidered robes from our lady's white shoulders, and she went straight away into the bothy to bathe. That is when I saw that the men had followed her. They had hung back on the sloping hill, gathered and watching, all of them with their mouths agape, except for two. And we maidens watched back, all with our mouths agape, for we had seen few men since the ladies' consort died, and that was some years ago, when most of us were but children. One whose mouth was closed upon his thoughts was my Eldun. By the way he stood, and the other men regarded him, it was clear he was their leader. And it was at him that the other maidens stared, for even though he was tossed and draggled by his sea voyage, he stood straight and tall, hale of limb and proud of sinew. His shoulders were broad and strong, although his beard was like a wild man's, and his hair was tangled with wind and salt, it shone bright and gold in the sunlight, and there was a fierceness in his eyes as he stared at the door of the bothy where the lady had gone. But I looked at the other man, who saw me looking, and smiled. Seba? It was my lady's voice. I went inside the bothy where it was warm with steam. She sat in the bronze tub, pouring water from a dipper over her white skin. Go forth on my behalf and make them welcome in the dune, she said to me. Their leader is named Maelduin. So I was the one who went to give them the greeting. Picking up my skirts and making my way up the slope, while my sister-maidens watched in envy. Although I was not afraid when I began, my heart beat quicker as I drew near. If they were reavers, they would have fallen upon us at once. Still, they were men. I breathed slowly, that my voice should not tremble. My lady gives you greeting to you and your men, my Alduin, I said to him. Do you come with me? We'll make you welcome. His eyes were pale blue, ringed in black like a falcon's. Although he was young, a man with such eyes might gaze at the sun until he saw visions. There was a wariness in them, but no fear. Who is your lady that she knows my name? he asked me. And although his accent was strange and harsh, and there were words that sounded wrong to my ears, he spoke the tongue of Airu. What is this place? Does she rule here? I gave him the only answer I knew. She is the Lady of the Isle. This is her place. I am seeking the sea raider who killed my father, Ailil, 
who was called Ailiel, Edge of Battle. The pale falcon's eyes did not blink. Does your queen know where he is to be found? I shook my head. I do not know, my Alduin, what the lady knows and does not. Will you accept her hospitality? He turned to the man beside him. What do you think, Dairan? It was the man who had smiled, and he smiled at me again. My ears went hot and my tongue felt thick and clumsy in my mouth. He was dark, where my Alduin was fair, with hair as brown as oak leaves and watchful dark eyes. They were eyes that might see visions, too. Not in brightness, but in quiet, still places, where other men would not have the patience to wait. My Alduin, it is not in my heart to refuse the grace of a lady of this place, Dairan said, and I knew by his words and the music in his voice that he was one of the field, who had studied among bards, and not like the others who were warriors first and foremost. How could I bring myself to tell the tale if we failed to accept it? Spoken like a poet, my Alduin clapped a hand upon his shoulder, and I saw that there was much affection between them. As for the other men, they eyed the distant maidens and made approving sounds, nudging one another, trying in vain to comb their tangled beards with their fingers. Lead on, girl. I led them to the dune, and saw from the corner of my eye that my sisters were going on ahead to draw water from the well of the dune to heat it within the walls. Also I saw the lady emerge, and a glimpse of her fair skin, rosy from the bath, and then two maidens slipping the robe over her. And I saw that my Alduin looked too, and a strange smile touched his lips. Inside the dune, my Alduin's men marvelled at the strong stone walls and the arching doorways. I could see it had been many days since they had dwelled out of the elements. Come, I said to them, you will want to bathe before the lady receives you. They went without complaining, and some of them exclaimed at the sight of so many steaming tubs. My Alduin said nothing. Only Dairan spoke, touching my wrist with two fingers. So, we do not bathe where the lady bathes. No, I whispered the word. That place is sacred. He nodded and let me go. The pulse in my wrist throbbed. We made ready for them while they bathed. There were things that had been brought by the isle folk and left for us. Brown bread, cheese, apples, strong ale, a slaughtered pig, ready for the spit. I do not know how they knew to do such things, save that the lady had told them. For she went forth among them every day to hear their concerns and make such judgments as were needed. Such was her duty, and such were her mysteries. There were great splashes and shouts of laughter from behind the closed door where male Duin's men bathed. We maidens glanced at one another and nodded and smiled, as if to say, yes, that is how men behave, though we knew little of such things. Then the lady came among us, in raiment fit for a queen. Her robes were of the purest blue, adorned on the hems and the edges of the sleeve with gold embroidery three handspans deep, her hair, that was a deep auburn in hue, hung down in her back in a gleaming mass of autumn splendour. 
two lengths of it had been braided and bound with gold cord, and these were woven into coronet about her head. Around her throat was a great collar of gold, set with blue gems, and gold sandals peaked beneath the hem of her robe. We all paused in awe to see her in such finery, with such a brightness upon her. Eithne, who was boldest among us, spoke first. Will you take my Aldoon as your consort then, lady? I will. She smiled, and in my heart I sighed with gladness that it was not Dairan she had chosen. This night we shall celebrate it. My daughters, follow your own desires, and make such choices as you will, or none at all, as it so please you. There was much excited whispering then, as we laid out the bowls of warm water, soft linen towels, and the shears. It did not seem there was any one among us unwilling to make a choice. I did not take part in it, afraid that if I voiced my desires, some other might voice the same. Seba. The lady touched my wrist, exactly as Dairan had done. I lifted my head to gaze at her lovely face. There was a shadow of sorrow in it, or of knowing. Do not give away your heart too fast, little bird. Those who see the most may be the most dangerous to love. I opened my mouth and closed it. I had no words. Ah, Danu! She smiled once more, although the shadow had not passed, and patted my cheek. You are young, and the heart will do as it will. Come and help me welcome our guests. She stood straight and tall among us as the doors to the great hall were opened, and lamplight played over her hair to make of it a second flame, subtle and muted. My Alduin stood at the forefront of his men, looking at her with his falcon's eyes, and I saw desire hit him like a fist. What she felt I could not say, but everything went quiet as they gazed at one another, those two. Then he looked past her and saw the chairs, the towels, and the shears laid out. My lady queen, a muscle in his jaw twitched. What is this? Why, my Alduin, she smiled at him, and there was a lilt in her voice such as none of us had heard. You and your men are as hairy as Eremites after a long voyage. Will you not let us make you comely? He stared at her a moment, then flung back his head with a Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. 
That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It had been a long time since the rafters of that hall echoed with a man's laughter. Striding across the rush-laid floor, my Alduin sat in the biggest chair. He planted his legs and put his hands upon his knees, tilting his chin. "'Will you shear me like a lamb, my queen?' he challenged her. "'No, my Alduin,' bending over him with tenderness, my lady laid a linen towel across his chest. She took up the keen-edged shears, and they gleamed silver in the lamplight. Only as a woman does a man whose face she wishes to behold. "'All right, then. Come, lads.' He grinned as the shears snipped, and a tangled clump of golden beard fell upon the linen. Who was next for the shearing? After that there was much milling in the hall. Some of the men were bold, and some of the maidens too. Others blushed and stammered, shuffling on uncertain feet. I stood in one place and shook my head when a man I did not desire approached me. With so many bodies milling, I lost sight of Dairan. And then he was there, alone, smiling at me. What is your name? Seba, I whispered. Seba, little songbird, with lips as red as rowan berries, your bright eyes pierce me to the heart. He brushed a curling lock of my hair with his fingertips. Little bird in the blackthorn thicket, do you have a gentle touch? A hot blush rose along the column of my throat, reddening my cheeks. I don't know. Well, let us find out together. He took a seat in the nearest chair and offered his throat. I had to lean over him to spread the linen towel. A clean scent rose from his warm, freshly scrubbed skin. Little songbird, would you know the name of the man who puts himself in your hands this night? he asked me. I am Dairon. I know. My hands trembled as I took up the shears. I know your name. Here. Dairon's fingers encircled my wrist, steadying me. They were strong and calloused from many a turn at the oar, but finely made. There was no mockery in his dark eyes, only gentleness. Here was a man who understood there was something more at work here. I will help you, Seba. It seemed to me, then, that everything else went away. I concentrated on clipping tangled locks, dipping a towel in warm water, and wiping loose hair from his chin. As I trimmed his beard short, the shape of his face became clear, younger than I had thought. His lips were firm and ruddy. I could hear his soft breathing and see the pulse beat steadily in the hollow of his throat 
I did not dare to meet his eyes, lest he see my thoughts. So I cut his beard until his handsome face showed, and I cut the nuts from his long hair until I could pull a wooden comb through it, and his hair lay on his shoulders, fine and shining, like a cape of oak leaves. And then solemn-faced Bridget was there, the youngest among us, holding a withy basket. Inside lay the hair of my Alduin's men, red and black and brown all mixed together, and locks of bright gold that were my Alduin's. I gathered the linen towel that held Dairan's brown hair. Wait, he caught my arm. His dark brows were drawn together in a frown. What is it you do here, little songbird? I made myself meet his eyes. Would you have us throw it upon the fire? What a stink that would make all this hair! I teased him, hearing a lilt come into my voice. I did not think you were a man to fear making a small offering of this place, Dairan. Dairan's lips smiled, but his eyes, intent on mine, did not. And what will you offer, little songbird, Seba? I swallowed. What would you have me offer? Your own hair, Seba, spread in black ringlets over my pillow, your rowanberry lips for mine to feast upon. At that expression on my face, his smile reached his eyes, and his grip upon my arm softened to a caress. Your white throat arched like a swan, and your white breasts, a pair of nestling doves cooing in my hands. All of that, sweet Seba, and more. I blushed this time to the roots of my hair. Dairan laughed and released me. Take it, he said to Bridget, still holding the basket and watching wide-eyed. Surely I will grow more. So it was done, and the shorn locks of his oak-brown hair were piled atop the others. Bridget went away with the basket, and we cleared away the towels and the shears and the bowls of warm water. In exchange we brought platters of food. So heavy, the weight made us stagger. The men dragged their chairs to the long trestle table and began to pile their trenches high with meat and bread, pouring foaming tankards of ale from the jugs we set on the table. Once it was done, we joined them. The lady sat in the centre and presided over our meal, and my Elduin sat beside her. With his beard neatly trimmed and his hair combed smooth, he looked less like a fierce warrior, and more like a young king at her side. There was that air about him that drew the eye. What had transpired between them I cannot say, though I may guess well enough. They exchanged glances and touches throughout the meal. Outside the walls of the dune, the night was falling. I think they would have hastened its coming if they could. His men ate with a good will, trying not to rush their hunger. Still, hands and faces were soon smeared with grease. I swabbed a piece of the brown bread and the juices of the meat and nibbled at it, for I had little appetite. Beside me, Dairan cut his meat into small pieces with his belt knife, eating slowly and with relish. He cut me watching him from the corner of my eye. You do not rush like the others, I said to him. 
No. He wiped his knife on a linen napkin. I'm accustomed to fasting. You are one of the field, are you not? I asked it quietly. I am. Diran laid down his knife. It is no secret, little songbird. I am only of the third caste. Half a poet, no more. He smiled at me. My Alduin sails at the behest of a monk of Dunclun to avenge his father. But it was my master, who is a druid, who told him to build his kara. We have no secrets from one another. He told me then of the voyage they had undertaken. It was a terrible and wondrous tale. Their journey was fated from the outset. The druid, Diran's master, told Maelduin only seventeen men might undertake the voyage. But his three foster brothers followed him and swam after them. Lest the brothers drown, Maelduin had pulled them aboard the Kara. After, they were blown off course and had been seeking the island where the reaver who had killed Maelduin's father lived ever since. Although they had not found it, they had seen many marvels. Diran told me of an island with ants the size of horses and another with birds the size of cattle. On the island of the empty fortresses, one of Maelduin's foster brothers sought to steal a collar of gold, and there a little white cat leapt at him like a fiery arrow and passed through him, and he was dead. Another of his foster brothers was lost on a strange island, where the folk wept and lamented without cease. When they tried to rescue him, he wept and covered his face, and would not come. Strange to tell, the third foster brother met a fate much the same, on an island where the company of men laughed and played without cease, and would speak to no one unless he joined them. Maeldwin had to sail without him, and that was the last of his foster brothers, though his fate happier than the others. When Diran finished speaking, there was silence, for all around the table had fallen into listening to the poet's voice, and Maeldwin's men mourned their lost comrades, filling their cups and toasting to their valour. Such is the price of vengeance, the lady said softly, lying her white hand on Maeldwin's. Perhaps that is the lesson the druid meant to teach you, for surely he knew your foster brothers would follow. Maeldwin did not answer for a long time. My queen, I do not know, he said when he did. But I'm weary to the bone, and glad enough to tarry here with you. At that his men laid aside their grieving for fearsome jollity, for such is the nature of warriors, who cannot afford to dwell upon the slain. They began to bang their cups upon the table praising the solace of women, and calling upon my lady and Maeldwin to make the nuptial toast as surely his foster brothers would have wanted, they said, for those lost comrades were no fools when it came to women's beauty and grace, even if they were fools in the matter of obeying druids. On it went until the lady laughed and ordered a cask of good red wine to be breached, and the two-handled loving cup to be brought forth. This was done and wine poured into it until it foamed pink. Each grasping a handle they drank. 
first her, and then him. Afterward her gaze was tender and bright upon him, and something in his falcon stare had eased into softness. His men shouted and cheered, and we cheered too. I marked how Dairan raised his cup with the others and offered a toast, but when the lady and my Elduin rose to leave the hall, he gazed after them and his brow was furrowed. Then he turned to me and smiled, and the smile smoothed his brow. What do you say, Seba, my songbird? Shall we stay and make merry, or shall we go forth and conclude the offering? The heat of his smile warmed me in unfamiliar places, and I blushed and nodded, unable to make an answer. He took my hand in all gentleness, and some of my sister-maidens gazed on me with envy, having heard his poet's voice. I paid them no heed, and Iran let me lead him forth from the hall, down the winding corridors of the dune, to my own chamber. It was a small room, but I shared it with no one. There was a narrow window that led in slanting rays of light from the rising moon. I stood in it as Dairan removed my clothes with his gentle hands. Moonlight silvered my skin. Little bird. My Seba, he whispered, his breath soft and warm on my neck. Sea lily, pale as frost, your side is as smooth as the swell of a wave, shining like foam in the starlight. Your sweet breasts are proud as mountains, tipped with the dawn's rosy glow. Come to me. Hold me in your rounded white arms. I did, and he kissed me until my head swam. And then he lay me down upon my pallet and unlaced his shirt and his breeches. Naked in the moonlight, he looked like a vision, a man risen out of an enchanted pool. I reached out my arms, and the pallet dipped under his weight. Sweet Seba, he murmured, and I shivered to feel him press the length of me, his skin so warm. Love me well, my songbird. So it was that first night my Alduin and his men arrived, and I did not heed my lady's advice, but gave away my heart to Dairan, the poet, as though it had no more value than a speckled pebble I'd found beside the brook. I did not know it then. Love sets its barbs like a hook. It does not hurt until the line is tugged. I knew only that his words made my heart sing like the songbird he named me, and his touch made my blood sing. Such were the mysteries we uncovered together that night, the simple mysteries of a man and a woman together, and I was glad to know them at last. The next day the lady went forth on her grey mare, as she did every morning, riding inland to hear the isle folk's concerns. Maelduin was content to wait in the great hall, and his men were content too, playing at knuckle-bones and such games as men invent who have spent much time together. When she returned she greeted Maelduin with a kiss, he caught her arm and begged her to stay, but she shook her head and smiled. "'Would you have me be idle?' she teased him. "'You have earned your rest, but I have work to do.' She went then to her day-chamber, and I went with her. It was a formidable job to card and comb all that we had gathered. On my own I would have lacked the patience for it, 
and so would my sister-maidens. But Our Lady spoke gently to us. Bit by bit we eased the tangles from the matted fibres, and the pile in the basket grew smaller. Our Lady began to spin. That night there was another feast, and revelry filled the hall. Diran had found a lap-harp, and he played and sang love-songs for us. Listening to his rich voice, I felt as though I were floating, and I wished the moment might never end. "'Is this not better sport than vengeance, Maildwin?' the lady asked him. He smiled. "'Truly, my queen.' So it was that night, and the next, when Diran laid down his harp, I led him back to my chamber and laid down upon my pallet with him, holding him in my arms. After love we sank deep into sleep, and though his head was heavy on my shoulder, I welcomed its weight. Those moments, too, I wished would never end. For many days it was much the same. In the morning the lady went about her duties, and we went about our chores. During the afternoon we retired to her day-chamber. Day by day the basket dwindled toward empty. Day by day the length of silk and fine thread increased upon the wheel. One day as we worked, we heard footsteps in the corridor outside. They halted at the door to the lady's chamber. A strange hand tried the door and found it locked. The other maidens and I glanced at one another. Any one of us would have knocked. We looked to the lady, whose hands had gone still upon the wheel. Let them pass, she said quietly. It is of no concern. We sat quietly and soon there were footsteps going away. That night in the hall, Diran played the harp he had found, but he sang no love songs. Instead he sang a song of lament for the foster brothers of Maeldwin, who had died on their voyage. And Maeldwin's men wept as they listened, but in Maeldwin's eyes there were no tears. He looked only at the lady, taking pleasure in the sight of her. When they had gone, and Diran had laid down his harp, I stood. No, Seba. There was sorrow in his voice. He gazed at my outstretched hand and shook his head gently. We have tarried too long in this place. I will not be going with you tonight. Why? I whispered. Your lady knows the reason, he said. If you do not, ask her. I fled the hall, weeping. On the day that followed, Maeldwin's men were restless and muttered to one another, no longer content to idle in the dune playing games as they had done. Instead they tended to the Karah, dragging it farther up the shore and overturning it. A fire was built, and the pitch-pot set to heat until it smoked, so they might apply a fresh coating in the hide seams of the Karah. When it was done, the Karah was sea-ready. But Maeldwin had no interest in leaving, preferring to wait in the dune until the lady returned to join him in the evening. And that night Diran did not sing love songs, but the song of their voyage. He sang of further wonders they had seen, of an island divided in twain by a brazen palisade, with white sheep on one side and black sheep on the other, of an island where golden apples grew and were eaten by swine with eyes of fire, where the ground was so hot it burned their feet, 
of an island with miraculous fountains that yielded water and milk. Maeldwin's men listened to his songs, and said amongst themselves, Yes, so it was. And they told the stories to each other. Yes, here are the marks of scorching upon the sole of my shoe. Yes, that was the isle where Maeldwin flung a peeled white birch wand on the black side of the fence, and it turned black, and we fled. But such talk had no interest for Maeldwin, who wished only to gaze at the lady. And when I saw this, I remembered how she had made ready to receive him, and how he had stared after the bothy where she had gone to bathe. And I understood that an enchantment had been laid upon him. Once more I slept alone, and I wept. I listened the next morning as Maeldwin's men spoke to him of leaving. Their voices grew loud and angry, for they were afraid for their leader and loath to leave without him. As Maeldwin listened, his brows drew together, and something of the falcon's stare came back into his eyes, as if he were emerging from a fog. Then he caught sight of me lurking, and smiled, and his features eased once more. "'What, lads?' he asked. "'Have you grown tired so quickly of a life of plenty and fair maidens to attend you?' In the corner was Dairan, who had said nothing. He said nothing now, but only met my gaze. I left to await the lady in her day-chamber. The thread she had been spinning came to an end, and was finished that day. With no carding and combing to do, the other maidens were gossiping and idle, speaking of the men's restlessness. I sat quiet and watched as the lady removed the thread from the wheel and wound it into a little ball, her white hands working deftly. It was a mottled thing when it was done, brown and black and red, with bits of gold glinting here and there. Lady, I said when she was done, why do you keep Maeldwin here against his will? After I spoke, the chamber went very quiet for the other girls were shocked at my boldness. But the lady smiled and shook her head to show she was not angry. I do nothing against his will, little bird, she said to me. A warrior's pride is a fearsome burden. I have given him leave to lay it down. And with that I had to be content, for the lady said no more, but tucked the ball of thread in the bodice of her robe, and went forth to greet Maeldwin in the great hall, and we went with her. That night Dairan played the harp, and sang of Maeldwin's father, Aelil, who was called Aelil Edge of Battle. And it came that Maeldwin had never known his father. He had been fostered as a queen's son, and raised in ignorance of his true parents. For Elil had gotten him upon a nun in a convent who had taken vows against such things. But when a jealous rival taunted Maeldwin with his lack of knowledge, he went to the queen, and she brought him to his mother in the convent, who told him where to find his father's people. And that was Dunclun, where Maeldwin learned how his father Elil had died, defending a church from reavers who came riding. But he was slain and Reavers burned the church around him. And when Dairan laid down his harp, all the men were silent, 
and I saw there were tears in Maeldwin's eyes. When the lady led him from the hall, his steps were slow, and twice he turned to look back at his men. Seba, Dairan held out his hand to me. Will you have me this night? It was in my thoughts to say no, for he had set himself against my lady's will. But his eyes were dark and sad, and I knew he took no joy in it. So it was my heart that answered, and I said yes. There were words he whispered into my ear that night, but they were for me and me alone, not for others to hear. Though it grieved me, I knew it was in his heart to say farewell, and that was why he had come to share my pallet. In the morning, when dawn cast a rosy glow on the narrow window of my chamber, I watched him rise and don his clothing. "'Why must you attempt this thing, Dairan?' I asked him. "'You know there is no harm in this place, nor in the lady.' In the act of settling his belt, he paused, and his hands went still. "'It would not be ill done if Maeldwin were to lay aside vengeance.' he said slowly. But he must come to it in his own way. Dairan leaned down and kissed me. Goodbye, little songbird. He left then, and after he had gone I rose and donned my clothing. I knew the rhythms of the dune, and I knew the mind of Dairan. They would wait until the lady had left upon her daily duty, to hear the concerns of the Isle folk and give them counsel. When it was time, I climbed to the ramparts. I watched them push the Kara to the shore, seventeen strong men straining, the Kara leaving a deep track in the coarse sand. There, where the long green waves surged and broke into curls of foam, they launched their mighty vessel. I watched as the men splashed in the water and tumbled inside the Kara scrambling to reach the oars. I could count their heads, brown and red and black, and my Alduin's like a helmet of gold. And then they were afloat, and the oars came out, beating in a steady stroke, driving them away from our shore. An expanse of water opened as they rowed, growing ever wider. In my heart, I felt empty. Then I saw the lady, riding along the shore on her grey mare. I saw her reach into her bodice, and the white gleam of her arm beneath her sleeve as she threw the bowl of thread. It flew in an arc through the air, unspooling as it went. And one end she held in her hand, and the other came loose at the end, fluttering down over the kara. There was a flash of sunlight upon Maeldwin's golden hair, as he stood and reached out to catch the thread. Once he had caught it, he could not let go. Winding the thread into a ball, the lady drew it taut. The kara turned its nose for our shore, and Maeldwin stood like a statue in the prow as the lady wound and wound the silken thread taut above the waves, drawing them ashore. Then she took the end from Maeldwin's hand and tucked the ball of thread into her bodice. I do not know what words were spoken between them, only that the lady turned her grey mare and rode to the dune. 
and Maeldwin and his men followed behind her. So it was that they returned, and though my heart was full, I did not know whether I was happy or saddened. All of us knew what had passed that day, but we did not speak of it, nor did we speak of it that night. Maeldwin sat at the lady's side, and he seemed content to be there, like a man who had won a reprieve. And Iran played the harp and sang love songs as though he had never sung anything else, and words of grief and vengeance and war had never passed his lips. But he would not meet my eyes, and I knew they would try again. In the morning I went to the stable where my lady was making ready to ride forth on her grey mare, and I touched the hem of her robe. Lady, I said to her, perhaps you should not go. The lady smiled at me. What, Seba? Would you have me be idle? I have a duty to the folk of the isle. And so she went forth, and inside the dune, Maeldwin shook off his torpor like a dog shaking water from its coat, and led his men to the peached kara, and I watched them from the ramparts once more. So I was watching as they drew away from the shore, and the green swell of the waves widened between us. But then the lady came riding, and I knew she had not been fooled. Once more she drew the ball of thread from her bodice and threw it, and my Elduin caught the end, and it stuck fast to his hand. And this time his men drew their swords and hacked at the thread, but it did not break, no matter how sharp their blades. So it was that the lady drew the kara ashore. When it was done, she turned her grey mare and rode slowly back to the dune, and Maeldwin and his men followed. That night in the hall, Maeldwin's men grumbled and said among themselves that there was no enchantment upon the thread, and that Maeldwin clung fast to it on purpose, for he did not wish to leave the lady's side. But Dairan did not join them in their complaints, only sang and played his harp, and this night I felt his gaze upon me. When the lady and Maeldwin left the hall, he laid down the harp. Seba, he said to me, little songbird, I do not think you did me a kindness when you cut my hair. It was a greater offering than you made claim. At that I was ashamed, and I did not answer. Dairan heaved a sigh, and it was such a sigh as held a world of sorrow. Seba, my Seba, for your slow eyes and sweet lips I would be content to stay. And you know me, lass. I am one who would be content to honour your lady. But the world beyond your shores is changing. And Maeldwin is not hers to keep. Do you serve your master, the druid, or the monks of Dunclun in this? I asked him bitterly. I serve Maeldwin, he said, and his voice was grave. Tell me true, sweet Seba, will the lady's thread stick fast to the hand of any man among us? And I thought of the fibres we had carded and combed with such care. "'straightening and smoothing each matted tangle, 
I thought of how the lady had spun them, brown and black, red and gold, into a single thread. And it was in my heart to lie. But Iran gazed at me with his dark poet's eyes, and my lips spoke the truth. Yes, I said to him. It will. He nodded, and I went away, for I did not want to know what he would do with such knowledge. Once only I glanced behind me, and Iran was plucking rushes from the floor of the hall, smoothing them on his lap. Then I saw no more. In the morning I did not go to warn my lady. Whether or not there would have been merit in it, I do not know. But I was sick at heart, and I had no wish for her to read the betrayal in my face. So I went to the ramparts, and I watched. For the third time, Maeldwin's men pushed the Kara to the shore, and it left its deep track in the sand like the mark of some vast beast. For the third time they launched their mighty vessel, and it rode proud atop the green swells, surging with each stroke of the oars. Once more I counted their heads, black and red and brown, and Maeldwin's among them. I saw them stand when the lady came riding, and the sunlight gleamed gold upon his hair. Already as her hand reached into her bodice and drew forth the ball of thread, he was gazing towards the shore. I wondered what look he had in his pale eyes. Was it the falcon's fierce stare, or the tender gaze of a lover? There, the lady's arms moved, her skin white as foam. There, the mottled ball in a soaring arc, thread spinning out behind it, crossing the waves. There was the end, fine as silk, settling over the Kara and Maeldwin's hand reaching for it. I do not know which of his men leapt to catch it instead. He had a name too, but I do not know it. It was too far, and there was nothing about him I knew at such a distance. I know only what I may guess. When Dairan held the rushes concealed in his hand, and Maeldwin's men drew lots, he was the one who drew the broken reed. The end of the thread stuck fast to his hand. The lady began to wind the thread into a ball, drawing the line taut, and the Kara's prow turned toward the shore. And there was Dairan, and him I knew by the angle of his shoulders, and the movement of his limbs, by his hair as brown as oak leaves in autumn, and everything about him. I knew there was sorrow in his dark poet's eyes, sorrow and a warrior's resolve. The sunlight was bright on the steel blade of his sword as he swung it, severing the man's hand at the wrist. So it was that the man's severed hand fell into the green sea, and with it fell the end of the thread that the lady had spun, hour upon slow hour. And Maeldwin and his men sailed away, and Iran was among them, and my lady was left on the shore, bereft and weeping. In the stories told by men, they say only what further adventures befell Maeldwin and his men. In the end he found his father's slayer, and forgave him. It was a monk, a holy hermit, 
who bid him to do so. When the tale made its way to our shores, the lady heard it and smiled, though there was sadness in it. I do not know in the end if I served her purpose or hindered it. Although she bore me no ill will for what I had done, I did not dare to ask. Such boldness as I once had, I lost that day. I knew only that I was no longer worthy of speaking her name. Of me, the tales do not speak. Perhaps it is as well. My name was Seba. It appears that the desire to seek revenge will overcome even the most compelling magic. Perhaps the threat of idle hands is greater than the unknown threats of the adventures to come. And maybe that's the point. To live a comfortable, boring life, or to seek the unknown, whatever the motivation. Whatever the reason, if you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, we hope you will feel motivated to make a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and are very easy to use. Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it, don't sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the F website. I'm off to do a little Zen shopping of my own, hoping to find that elusive bottle of infinity syrup, or maybe just hoping to keep from being idle. Who knows what adventures await? I hope you find your bottle soon. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.